Today on Something You Should Know, a food label tells you how many calories are in the food, but how do they come up with that number? Then, swearing. Why do we do it? Is there any value in it? And why you use the same swear words most of your life. For each of us, our swearing tends to sort of ossify towards the end of adolescence. So what I think of as being highly offensive is likely to be very different to what my parents thought of as highly offensive and will be different again to what my daughter thinks of. Plus, you've heard the slogan that sex sells? Well, it doesn't, and I'll explain why. And if you think the world is going to hell, it may just be your thinking is wrong. If you think in terms of facts, there's no conclusion that you can come to but that most things are getting better for most people in most places in our very large world. All this today on Something You Should Know. Microsoft Teams is helping a bicycle company reinvent the way that they work. We make bicycles for everyday riders. Once the pandemic hit, we started doing virtual visits. All of a sudden, we could open up our showroom to customers around the world. Learn more at Microsoft.com Teams. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, and welcome. I'm just back from vacation and ready to go with episode 196 of Something You Should Know Today. And we start with one of my favorite topics, the science of everyday life. For instance, when you read the calorie count on a food label, have you ever wondered, well, how do they come up with that number? How do they know that's how many calories are in that food? Well, calorie counts are calculated by burning food. To figure out how many calories a food has, scientists use a calorimeter. I think I'm pronouncing that right. One type of calorimeter essentially burns up food inside a device surrounded by water. By measuring how much the temperature of the water changes, scientists can determine how much energy was contained in the food. And that's what calories are, energy in food. Density explains why cold water feels colder than cold air at the same temperature. Because water is denser than air, your body loses heat 25 times more quickly while in water than it would in air at the same temperature. That loss of body heat makes you feel colder. You could heat your house with people. People give off body heat, as anyone who's been trapped in a small, crowded room knows. So how many people would it take to warm up your home with just body heat in the winter? The answer is about 70 people in motion or about 140 people standing still. A Lego brick can support 770 pounds of force. For anybody who stepped on one, Lego bricks do seem indestructible, but they're not quite indestructible. Legos can support four to five times the weight of a human without collapsing. They are strong enough to support a tower of 375,000 bricks, which which would be about a a Lego tower about 2.2 miles high. After that, eh, (laughs) that bottom Lego could collapse. And that is something you should know. Since the first caveman smacked his head on a rock, there has probably been swearing. People swear, and it seems to me they swear more than ever before. 
But why do people swear? And what makes swear words so horrible? Why are some worse than others? And is there any benefit from swearing? Here to shed some light on that is Emma Byrne, who has spent a long time looking at the subject of swearing. Emma is actually a robotic scientist, but for our purposes, she's the author of a book called Swearing is Good for You, and she joins me from the UK. Hi, Emma. Welcome. So why the interest in swearing? One of the things that really intrigued me about swearing is the fact that it is so incredibly important in our language. It has various different roles from helping us express sympathy or bonding in teams uh, through to killing pain. And there are a lot of positive points to swearing. And yet we spend a lot of our time trying to tell ourselves not to do it. But when you look at all cultures throughout the world and throughout time, in fact, even when you look at other primates that can communicate, swearing is an essential part of every language that we know of. So it's something that we can't make go away, no matter how hard we may try. And we think that it probably comes from, uh, certainly from parts of the brain that are really involved in processing emotions, not just our own emotions, but the emotions of others as well. And swearing is is that kind of language that, that remains when all other words fail us, when circumstances are so extreme that there's nothing else in our vocabulary that will that we'll just quite do. It does seem, though, that swearing lately in the last, I don't know, five, ten years seems to be much more, I I don't know if it's acceptable, but it's certainly more commonplace. I think what happens in every generation, you see writers saying something very similar, going all the way back as long as as history has been recorded, uh, that this generation's swearing, they're just so much more likely to use offensive words than we are. Um, But part of that is just a function of the way that taboos evolve in societies. So there are words that certainly at your age or my age, as we grew up, we probably wouldn't have used that commonly in front of people, Uh, would have thought of them as being particularly strong swear words, uh, like the F word and particularly like the C word. Um, But over time, those taboos move on. But that's not to say that swearing has become necessarily more commonplace, just that what constitutes swearing has changed. So there are words like the N-word, for example, that used to appear in literature and that my grandparents would not have thought of as being particularly offensive, but that now with a sort of greater understanding of the role that that word has played in in denigrating people and in communicating hatred over the years, that the N-word has become unsayable, whereas words like, like damn or bloody or even taking the Lord's name in vain is considered far less offensive to most people. But it's not that swearing as a whole has become more commonplace. It's just the attitudinal shift has changed what we what we see as swearing, what we define as as taboo language. Is there any sense of the words like the F word, the C word, the S word, how did it become that those words became offensive? I mean, the, the words are just words, but somehow they, they elevated or, <laughs> or de-elevated into this uh, category of words that are so forbidden. But says who? I mean, wh- how did that happen? Yeah, it's a really fascinating thing to watch evolving uh, as languages change. So, for example, the C word back in Chaucerian English was just a, a commonplace term, you know, it's a way that you spoke about that part of the body because our taboos about bodies were very different then. Whereas religious 
swearing was was far more important. Um, what's more, the idea of women swearing was considered considerably less uh, offensive back in those days than it is now. Now women are judged more harshly than their male counterparts for swearing, whereas back in Chaucer's days, it was sort of fairly equal opportunity. And what you see are occasionally there are people who define a moment in history. So in the history of the English language, uh, a chap by the Reverend Richard Allistree is, is highly fundamental. He he writes this pamphlet called The Lady's Calling that essentially shapes our attitudes down to this day about the difference between men swearing and women swearing. But you also see in different sort of societal eras. So here in the UK, the Victorians are known for their propriety and their desire to cleanse their language of things that might be seen as being offensive. Uh, and to the point which uh, even the word trousers became replaced by the term uh, the unmentionables. So as much hitching up of the unmentionables as Dickens writes at one point. So there are times when in our culture, in our society, we, we seem to want to police our language more. And they tend to coincide with times of great social upheaval, where people are feeling sort of under threat and particularly under threat by members of society that aren't necessarily you know, people who've been powerful up until this point. And we see it now. I think there is a reflection now in the various calls for civility. Quite often, those people who are calling for civility are the ones who have the least to lose uh, if circumstances carry on as they are. Whereas those people who are saying things that are deemed offensive are quite often those that are saying, look, things have to change. I, I cannot allow this to go on in good conscience. We see that over and over again, that linguistic propriety and social upheaval, or at least a, a demand for linguistic propriety and social upheaval, do tend to go hand in hand. So are, are you saying that these words existed and were relatively benign, but because of somebody or something or some event or some movement, and they became more offensive, but they were words before? Or did someone say, I'm going to come up with a swear word and the F word, it's going to rhyme with duck, and here it is? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, the first of those two. And, and we see it happening now uh, with the kinds of words that are, are used as slurs. So again, even sort of 10, 20 years ago, the it was still possible uh, for someone to, in good faith, say, but hey, is it okay for me as a white person to use the N-word? You know, is is it really that bad? Whereas over time, as that conversation's taken place, and as people of colour have, have been granted finally some space to to put forward their their opinions on this and say, look, for for us, for a person of colour, the, the N-word out of a white person's mouth can quite easily be a precursor to a hate crime. You know, this is this is not something that you as a white person can ever understand the emotional intent behind that or the emotional effect of that on a person of colour. And that's why we'd prefer this not to be common parlance. And that's not because, you know, any great, um, in it, much, much as some people would like to agree, uh, believe this, it's not because there's some sort of committee of social justice warriors who sat down and gone, what words should we ban now? It's that the conversations that we've had, the things that we've paid attention to, have been more about the feelings of marginalised groups, the impacts of that kind of language on marginalised groups. Whereas we talk far less about our feelings about religion. It might not seem that way, 
but we talk far less about the importance of religion in our lives than we did, say, sort of 50 to 100 years ago. So it's it's a consensus, but not, it's not an explicit consensus. It's an, an emergent consensus, if you will, that what gets spoken about, what gets reflected in the media, what gets reflected in popular culture tends to influence what we think of as sayable or unsayable. And it particularly influences us as we're growing up. So for each of us, our, our swearing and what we consider to be the unsayable tends to sort of ossify towards the end of adolescence. So what I think of as being highly offensive is likely to be very different to what my parents thought of as highly offensive and will be different again to what my daughter thinks of as highly offensive because it will all be a reflection of what's going on in the media and in popular culture and in our society as, as we each grow up. My guest today is Emma Byrne, and she is author of the book, Swearing is Good for You. If you wear socks, why not wear the most comfortable socks? And the most comfortable socks, in my opinion, are Bombas socks. I'm wearing them right now. I wear them all the time. And you might be thinking, yeah, but, you know, socks are socks. Well, not really. Bombas socks are truly different. They went through a two-year research and development process and came up with seven substantial improvements over typical socks, including stay-up technology. It keeps your socks up, but not too tight. They have a seamless toe that eliminates that annoying bump, a cushioned footbed that gives you more comfort. I mean, these are great socks. And here's the thing. At Bombas, for every pair of Bombas socks purchased, they donate a pair to someone in need here in the U.S., So far, 7 million socks have been given away. So what's so great is that when you buy Bomba socks, you're not only getting great socks, you're also helping someone else. And you can save 20% by visiting bombas.com slash something. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash something and entering the offer something in the checkout code space. That's bombas.com slash something and use the offer code something. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. So, Emma, let's talk about the usefulness and the benefits of swearing, because I think for a long time people have dismissed swearing as vulgar and unnecessary, but in fact, there is some real research that says it, it has benefits. Yeah, I mean, we've really known for about 150 years that swearing 
is a very special part of language and it can be incredibly useful when people have suffered from brain injuries or from stroke. It's the kind of language that tends to persist even if you lose all of the rest of your ability to speak or to understand language. And the first person to notice this was actually a neuroscientist back in the Victorian era called John Hewlings Jackson, who went out to study people with epilepsy or people who suffered from strokes and found that they were very, very fluent in their use of profanity. And that various doctors have been describing these patients as being aphasic, as being entirely without words, when actually it turns out that they were extremely fluent, just not in the kind of language that these doctors were willing to write down in a medical journal. So Hewlings Jackson is the first person to write these words down and say, you know, the, the, mainly at that time, there were sort of religious profanities, blasphemies that people were using over and over again, and to try to understand what that meant about the structure of the brain. And from that point, on. It's allowed us to unpack the way that language and our emotions and the way in which we learn things are kind of linked together. So most of us have this sort of rule of thumb that language is on the left-hand side of the brain and emotion is on the right-hand side of the brain. But in reality, it's, it's a bit more complicated than that. It's a lot more redundant than that. So my background is, is as a computer scientist, and we talk about redundancy, the ability to have systems that if a bit of it fails, then something else will take over. Our brains are brilliant at that. And when we lose the parts of our brain on, on that are usually found on the left, things like Broca's area or Wernicke's area, the things that allow us to produce speech, there are still other parts of our brain that can pick up on our emotions, pick up on the content of our feelings, and that can still communicate with the incredibly sophisticated muscle um, movements that are required in order to make speech. So when you think about it, in order to say anything, you have to coordinate the action of your diaphragm, your lungs, your throat, your vocal cords, your teeth, your tongue, your lips. And that's a really difficult thing to do. And brokers and vernikers are usually, you know, sort of very, very adept at doing that. But if you lose them, if someone, for example, has to amputate the, the left side of your brain, as sometimes happens, that the parts of your brain that deal with emotion can still get those muscles to move, can still make extremely fluent speech, but it seems to be predominantly limited to just those swear words. So there is this connection between swearing and emotion and language that is distributed throughout the brain and is highly resilient to all kinds of other damage. But when people swear, uh, oftentimes it's looked on as, well, you know, you should have picked another word, but you picked that word because you're, you know, deficient in whatever you're deficient in. But in fact, using that word, whatever it is, because you hurt yourself or you, you know, cut yourself or whatever, almost has or or actually has a, a therapeutic effect. That's quite right. Yeah. So there's been some fantastic studies in the last 10 years um, and they're so reproducible. Um, so there are many studies in psychology that suffer a little bit with trying to reproduce them. You never quite get a strong an effect again. Um, but this res- uh, this experiment that was done at the University of Kiel here in the UK has been reproduced multiple times. And it basically shows that if you ask someone to plunge their hand in ice cold water, something that's quite painful, um, that they can do that for about half as long again if they're swearing than if they're using a neutral word. Those same researchers have looked into that to try to unpack why that might be. 
and they found sort of various physiological correlates of um, having a heightened emotional response while you're swearing. So that heightened emotional response might be part of the reason why you can withstand more pain. They've also looked at things like whether or not swearing increases your resilience in other sort of types of activity. So you can actually exert more strength and more stamina if you're swearing than if you're not. So there are a number of things that we're able to do that all seem to focus on resilience, withstanding pain, being stronger, that somehow swearing is prompting that in our in our body. And we're still trying to figure out exactly what it is that allows us to do that. But it does seem to be something to do with the increased emotional um, arousal that we feel when we when we use swearing. What about though when you when you're not necessarily in pain or something, but but sometimes swearing seems like the the word seems to be perfect. And, but but is it just <laughs> is it just a choice? Like when 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 you see something odd or something disturbing, and you go, "What the f." You know, that that feels right sometimes as opposed to saying, gee, what's going on? I mean, you know what I mean? It's like that that really that's really more fitting. That's right. And a lot of that is to do with our theory of mind, our ability to model the emotions of other people. Uh, So when we swear, it's usually because we have either experienced this emotional uptick in ourselves. We've seen something surprising or exciting or amazing or dismaying, or we've noticed that someone else is feeling the same way. And I did some research about five years ago, looking at how football fans use swearing on Twitter. Um, And we thought, you know, here in the UK, soccer fans have a bit of a reputation of being fairly aggro towards each other and the kinds of terrorist chants that you hear if you go to a game can sometimes be quite insulting towards the other team. And we thought that that would probably be the same on Twitter. But when we looked at it, most of the swearing that football fans use is used to demonstrate either sympathy because, you know, you are sharing this this terrible, this excrementally bad game with other fans, or it's used in elation, you know, that this is so fornicatingly good, and that <laughs> football fans on Twitter never actually swear at members of the opposite team. What they do is they swear in bonding, they swear in either excitement, you know, shared excitement with other fans of the same team, or in commiseration, in that sort of shared misery with other fans of the same team, and particularly with some of the teams that we've looked at, including one that I follow myself, you, you, it definitely shows that misery does love company, and that 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 willingness to to express your disappointment, uh, but to not do that in a way that is abusive towards any particular player. In fact, we only found uh, in you know sort of thousands of utterances, hundreds of thousands of utterances on Twitter, we only found one episode that led to people being explicitly abusive with that sw- their swearing, and that was where one particular player had carried out a a very nasty tackle on another player and caused them to be injured and taken off the pitch and that not only were the opposing team's fans uh, upset about this but his own team's fans were berating him in no uncertain terms and saying he deserved to have a red card because that behavior had been so bad so we do sometimes use it aggressively to keep people in line but more often than not it is actually used as you say sort of rhetorically it's chosen to express an excited state or a sympathetic state or a depressed state it's not used as a means of you know sort of essentially a, a verbal cudgel Sometimes it seems, though, it's used in a somewhat benign way. Like, you know, I can see, two, you know, two people talking and looking at the guy across the room and, oh, do you know him? Oh, yeah, he's an effing idiot. 
Now, now you could mm-hmm. just say he's an idiot, but but instead he's an effing idiot. Well, what? Well, and it's a little different. I mean, it's it's subtle, but it's it is different. You're right, and that degree of nuance that you can bring to bear with a really well-chosen swear word. Because normally when we're choosing words, we're really thinking about its kind of semantic associations. What does it, what images is it going to conjure up in that person's mind? What associations? But with swearing in particular, we're also having to think about what emotional state that's going to convey. And the stronger the swear word, the greater that degree of understanding that you're you're hoping that the person listening to you is going to take away in terms of, you know, how much should you be avoiding that person? How much do you need to be, you know, excluding that person from your social group? Or, you know, how bad is the situation that you're describing? And we have these layers of nuance. You mentioned something a moment ago, which I, I find interesting, that, that, that people, when describing, as you just said, oh, he, he's not just an a-hole, he's a total a-hole. Like, we need that to really yeah. drive the point home. Yeah, and this is one of the ways that English is surprisingly fluent with swearing. So our swearing vocabulary is quite poor compared to, say, Spanish. Uh, it's certainly very poor compared to Russian. In terms of the number of words we have that are denoted as swearing, we have very few. We tend to rely on the same set of the F word, the S word, um, a-hole and and the c-word. But the ways in which we modify them, or certainly even if you think of the ways in which we we can uh, conjugate the um, f-word, we use them so fluently. Well, it's a subject that everyone's exposed to, either because they swear or they hear other people swear, and it's interesting to hear the origins of it and the reason for it and, and all the other things you discussed. Emma Byrne has been my guest. Her book is Swearing is Good for You, and you'll find a link to her book in the show notes. Thanks, Emma. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. A new year is a good time to discover new interests. And if you have kids, a KiwiCo subscription will help your child discover something new all year long. As a subscriber, you get these very cool crates delivered to you that contain fun and innovative science and art projects, and they have different ones for kids of different ages. We've been KiwiCo subscribers for quite a while now, and some of the projects that my son has created are a pinball machine, a safe, a hand pump, and the most recent one, he actually built the headphones I'm using right now in the studio. Encourage your child to be innovators and creative thinkers. They won't believe what they can build and accomplish with KiwiCo. As a parent, I know it's hard to find new creative ways to keep kids busy while stretching their imagination, especially now. KiwiCo does all the legwork for you. Get real high-quality engineering, science, and art projects for your kids. And don't be surprised if you join in to help, as I always do, because these projects are so much fun. KiwiCo is redefining learning with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid, or kid at heart, at KiwiCo. Get 30% off your first month, plus free shipping on any crate line with code SOMETHING at KiwiCo.com. That's 30% off your first month at kiwico.com, promo code SOMETHING. 
You've likely heard me mention and recommend the Jordan Harbinger Show podcast before, and the reason I mention it is, well, yes, Jordan advertises his show here, and he does that for strategic reasons. You see, people who like this podcast are bound to like his podcast. He and I have a similar philosophy. In fact, I just spoke with him on the phone yesterday to compare some notes. Look, I really want you to give The Jordan Harbinger Show a listen. He covers a lot of topics with big-name guests like Seth Godin, Mark Cuban, uh, Kevin Systrom, one of the founders of Instagram. And Jordan's done really interesting episodes where he talks about his visits to North Korea, as well as how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars being chased by the feds and the mafia. So, as you see, there's a lot of variety, but one constant is Jordan's ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you'll find something useful that you can apply in your life in every episode of Jordan's podcast. I enjoy the Jordan Harbinger show, and and I'm not saying that because he's advertising. It really is good. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So when you look at the world, do you think the world is a better place than 5, 10, 20 years ago? Or does, does it look like the world's just falling apart? Is your life better or worse than it was 5, 10, or 20 years ago? What about your community? It's easy, because we look at news and social media, it's easy to think that things are going to hell in a handbasket. But what if you were to objectively measure things that really matter? What then? Could it be that things are just leaps and bounds better than they were before? Well, the answer is yes, according to Greg Easterbrook. Greg is the author of 10 books. He has written for The New Yorker, Wired, Harvard Business Review, and The Wall Street Journal. And he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences just last year. His new book is called It's Better Than It Looks, Reason for Optimism in an Age of Fear. Hi, Greg. Thanks for being here. So what are the things that you measured, objectively, to come to the conclusion that things are so good now? Longevity disease rates, pollution rates, crime rates, education levels, living standards. In the United States, almost every barometer, objective barometer, this is not how you feel about your life, this is what we can measure. Almost every, every barometer has been positive at least for years and in most cases for decades, in some cases for generations. And the positive arc of events applies in almost all other developed countries, Western Europe, uh, Japan principally, and is beginning to apply to a surprising extent in the developing world, including the parts of Asia and Africa that seemed close to hopeless a couple of generations ago. And by that, I don't mean that everything's fine. Of course, I don't mean that. And I don't mean that you would necessarily feel great about what you read in the newspapers or increasingly on your phones. I'm just saying the conclusion of the book is that almost everyone in the world today lives better objectively, than almost everyone from any past generation. So why do people feel as if the opposite is true? Well, there, there are, are, are a variety of theories. One is that if you look at the past, Americans especially, but people in many nations have always felt negative about their 
national conditions. I, I begin one chapter called, it's titled, How Declinism Became Chic, by describing great works of literature that talk about how terrible the condition of the United States is and how Western society is about to end and how everything's falling apart and we can never possibly came up with a rate of change. And I don't tell you the titles of the books. And then the punchline at the end is that every book, play, novel, etc. that I describe was written at least 100 years ago. So people have felt this for a long time. I think in the modern era, improving communications is great. How can you be how can you possibly be opposed to improving communications? But communications, in order to draw attention to itself, there's this long been true of newspapers now is true of social media on your phone, relentlessly emphasizes the negative and overstates discord. So when you look at your phone what, or, or whatever your other source of news is, when you listen to podcasts, you tend to hear emphasis on whatever's most negative and most bleak. And if that's all you hear, it makes you think that everything's falling apart. Even if you look out your window and you say, hmm, the sky is blue today. I'm in Washington, D.C. This guy is not blue today. But, but if you look out your window and things seem fine and all the people you know are fine and your local health care and schools and, and economy, all these things are fine. But you look on your phone and you, your phone is telling you, bang, 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 terrible, terrible, terrible. You think, well, maybe I don't understand what's going on. Maybe the world's actually worse than what I think. And, I, and we, it, this is emphasized in the United States by the 2016 presidential election, Donald Trump got 63 million votes by relentlessly telling voters that the condition of the world was country, was terrible. As he said just before the, his election in, in October of 16, referring to the United States, our country has never been in worse condition than today. That's the reverse of what was true. But 63 million people believed him. And, and so we're surrounded by all these negative messages, and, and the negative messages sink into an awful lot of people. But it may be so that the world is better, according to the benchmarks that you outlined. But if my life isn't better, people are selfish. If the world is better, but your life sucks, well, it doesn't really matter that the world is better. Uh, You've got to make your world better. Well, uh, people are selfish, and and I think, Mike, you can use selfish, and it's not necessarily a compliment to call someone selfish, but to be selfish is at some level rational. Um, we, we think that market economics are rational in part because people act in their own self-interest first, not in the interest of distant people that they don't know, and that, but that at the end everyone ends up better off as a result. So I don't think it's necessarily bad to consider your own situation before you consider the largest, larger arc of the world. What I argue, and it's better than it looks, is that most people's own situations are much better than they're willing to admit. If you measure by buying power, almost everybody, including the middle class, has had steady increase in buying power since the end of World War II, has had steady increase in buying power in the last decade. If you measure people's health, public health, and almost all things, except now in the United States in painkiller addiction, has been improving dramatically. Heart disease rates, cancer rates, stroke, hypertension, they're all in three generation long cycles of decline. We're all, almost all of us, not every single person, but almost all of us are healthier than we used to be. We almost all are better educated than we used to be. There's a g- single generation long decline in violent crime. There's a single generation long decline in the frequency and intensity of wars in the world. 
Today, a person living anywhere in the United States, anywhere in the United States, anywhere in Europe, anywhere in Afghanistan, is less likely to be a fatality of war than in any previous generation. All these things show that average people. I'm not talking not talking about the rich here. Average people are in better shape than they've ever been in. But we sure don't want to believe that about ourselves. And at some level, what we want to believe ourselves will always trump what you can show with facts and statistics. Well, sure, because your reality is your reality. I don't care what your chart says. Uh, if you think your life sucks, your life sucks. Well, but see, that's, that's getting... You know, I started by saying I, 15 years ago I wrote a book about what you think about your life. It's clearly true if you think your life is terrible, then that's how you experience life. But this is a choice that we make. This is not something that's imposed on us by outside forces. Most people choose to have a negative or positive view of their own lives. And I, what I, in my previous book, I argued that choosing to experience your own life in a negative way harms only one person, you. You're the only person that suffers because of that choice. And to choose to experience your life in a positive way, I certainly don't mean to be a Pollyanna about this. People who are optimistic and have positive views of the world are also well aware of all of the many terrible problems in the world, and they also have many terrible problems in their own lives. People who are optimists are not people who don't have problems. They are people who believe that they can solve their problems. Well, sure. If your perception of the world from watching the news or being on social media that the world is nothing but a pack of problems, well, you kind of absorb that and it becomes part of your view of life and the world and everything. And and in fact, we live in a culture where it's very much, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And the, the weird and the unusual and the negative and the sad and the catastrophic is, is what we see more of in the news. In, in the past, it was, I read something terrible in the newspaper, and therefore everything must be terrible. Now we have to resist the urge to say, I saw something terrible on Instagram, and therefore everything must be terrible. <laughs> Our perception of life should be based on fact. And if you think in terms of facts, you still may say, well, I don't like my neighborhood, I don't like my friends, I don't like my family. I, I can't give you, you know, no, no one can answer what you decide to feel about your own experience of life. But if you look at facts and use rational analysis of facts to understand the world, you, there's no conclusion that you can come to but the one that I come to, and it's better than it looks, is that most things are getting better for most people in most places in our very large world. But the flip side of that is that there still is a great deal of suffering and injustice in the world that I think people are uncomfortable with, that we see it in the news all the time, uh, and, and, and it's hard to turn away. Oh, you shouldn't, Mike, it shouldn't just be uncomfortable with the suffering in the world, you should be angry. You can be an optimist and still be angry. You look, look, look at the United States. We still have, eight, depending on how you measure it, 8 to 10% of people who live in the United States, the wealthiest society in the world's history, are still living in poverty. That's outrageously high. If you look at the larger world, global poverty is in decline. I think actually the, the biggest, most important story in the, in the larger world in the last 25 years is the decline of extreme poverty in Asia and, and Africa. But there's still a lot of poverty. But here's, I, I think here's the, here's the distinction. 
between the optimistic and pessimistic worldviews. If you become a pessimist, you think, well, you know, why should I even want to try to help Africa or Asia? I'm just going to fail anyway. If you're an optimist, you think that problems can be fixed. Well, there does seem to be, though, in this country particularly, or maybe it's around the world, that it isn't just problems to be solved. There's a big divide in what is what is the problem. I mean, there's a, a lot of people today, particularly on college campuses, calling for socialism in the end of capitalism. Well, that's not, that's not a problem to be solved. That's a fundamental difference and divide in how we should live. And that's a, I don't know how you solve that. I don't know either. I, there's an old, you may know this old joke in journalism, Mike, that the, the, the ultimate headline that you can put on the front page of the newspaper any day of the week is the headline, Utopia Still Not Achieved. Um, which is which is both true will always be true and has the has the requisite negative slant to it. Um, if your standard is I'll only be happy if everything is perfect for everyone, then you're never going to be happy because uh, uh, absent divine intervention, it's really hard to imagine how everything could be perfect for everyone. But if your standard is most things are better for most people, and I see trends of progress in important social issues, let's say climate change is one, that means a lot to a lot of people, then I think you can be optimistic about the future. If, if, you're, if you really hope that you, we can devise some system of government or economics that will end all problems for everyone, I'm not, we shouldn't rule that out. It would be nice to have that kind of utopian ideal, but it doesn't sound terribly practical, does it? So what do we do with this? I mean, it's great to say that despite all the problems that we see in the world, that things are getting better, and they have been getting better for some time. So now what? Well, let's suppose that you make that pivot, Mike. First of all, I think that you, not you personally, but anybody who thinks in optimistic terms, you increase your likelihood of a better experience of your own life. And that's not an inconsequential thing can't guarantee this will happen for you, but most people who switch from a negative to a positive view of the world find that their own experience of their own life, their own one chance at life improves, and that's not a small thing. But then you look out to the larger world, so well, okay, what effect is this going to have on the country or, 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 or even the entire earth? If I think that things can be improved, instead of saying that now in the last 10 years are politics has been really motivated with this desire to harm other interest groups. And that's not the way to think about it at all. We should think in terms of civic spirit and want to help other interest groups and and want to participate in a grand civic experiment whose end result will be positive, not negative. And and I think if you buy what I'm selling intellectually, that the world is getting better and, and the improvement of the world can be accelerated, then it makes you want to be civic-spirited. What does seem interesting to me, though, is that we can't all today agree on what the problems are that we need to fix, that some people claim man-made global warming is destroying the world. Other people say it's not. Uh, Some people say we need to stop immigration, illegal immigration into this country. Others say open the borders. We can't agree on the problems, and... Added to that is the level of rhetoric and the yelling and the screaming at each other 
makes a lot of what you're talking about seemingly impossible. Yeah, and there's, uh, I cite what I think was an important political science textbook from about 12 years ago. This was right before Facebook. So before all this, you, you, not only do we want to scream at each other, but we want to scream at people that we've never met and never will met, never will meet, who are just little avatars on, on Facebook and similar websites. But there was a, there's a really good political science textbook called Red or Blue Nation. Who I think it's 2006 was the publication year. And its basic thesis is that it used to be considered polite for people not to discuss politics or religion in public because you didn't want to offend somebody else. Now we've gone, and, and that kind of tended to dampen a lot of kinds of debate. Now we've gone all the way to the other extreme, where people are expected to have very strongly phrased, angry opinions about practically everything, and the reason, remember, this is from 2006, this book I'm describing, and, there, and not by me, by the way. And, and the result is a society where people yell at each other. And what do we have now on cable news, on our phones, even at public events? We have a society where people yell at each other. We need to get past that, Mike. We really need to get past that. Well, it's an interesting topic, and, and the good news is, as you point out, that things objectively are better are getting better, have been getting better for some time, and and that's a message that I think we all need to take to heart. Greg Easterbrook is my guest. The book is It's Better Than It Looks, Reasons for Optimism in an Age of Fear, and you will find a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Greg. Okay. Thanks a million, Mike. I'm sure you've heard the advertising slogan, Sex Sells. But apparently, it doesn't. And violence, well, that sells even worse. Researchers at Ohio State University found that viewers are less likely to remember ads when they're shown around films and TV programs with explicit sex or violent content than during more family-friendly material. And the same goes for the graphic ads themselves. In looking at the results from 8,489 participants, the study found that violence had the greatest negative influence. Brands advertised with or around violent content were remembered less often and evaluated less favorably and less likely to be bought than products plugged alongside other media. The lead author of the study says it's not that people are not attracted to sex and violence. On the contrary, People have been attracted to sex and violence since uh, forever. But while violence and sex attract attention, it is at the expense of the surrounding content. So they just don't remember the brands being advertised, which is the whole point of the advertising. And that is something you should know. Remember, we have great advertisers on this program that support this podcast So I hope you will consider doing business with them because they are what keep this podcast going. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.